Hello and welcome to Sci Section. I am Emily O'Halloran and I am your journalist for today. Uh, today we are joined by Dr. Matt Savelli, who is a professor at McMaster University and a scholar with a research interest in the history of psychiatry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So do you think we could start by just giving us a quick overview of your research in general and what you've been working on more recently? Yeah, so sort of at the, at the broadest level, what I'm interested in is the way that societies come to define mental health and illness. Um, you know, these are not naturally existing categories. They're categories we have to create. We're continually in the process of redefining them. So I have done a lot of work in the past on Eastern Europe and what sort of what mental health looked like uh, under communism. But lately, I've actually been working a lot on advertisements for psychiatric drugs, and I'm interested in what those advertisements say about mental illness and mental health. Oh, that's so interesting. So do you think there's kind of an aspect of profit involved in, in those advertisements that kind of change people's concepts of mental health? Well, I mean, well, they're, they're advertisements, so they are absolutely profit-driven. Uh, profit terms of what they're trying to achieve. For me, what's interesting is the way that, um, despite being advertisements, people often don't think of them that way. So instead, we think about them as informative or, or educational. Um, and they are in the sense that they do change how people think about mental health and illness, whether that's um, practitioners reading it. And that's kind of interesting because we typically imagine that practitioners are immune to things like advertisements, that they just, quote unquote, listen to the science. Um, but, but there's lots of research that shows that advertisements make a difference. Um, and then in some countries, advertisements are, are geared directly at consumers themselves, which is, which is fascinating because it changes how the sort of lay public thinks about mental health and illness. Wow, that's super interesting. Um, so during a global crisis like COVID-19, do you feel that the primary onus for kind of helping to provide resources for student mental health, do you think that lies within universities or do you think that is more so um, something that should fall within provincial jurisdiction? Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I might see it a little bit differently than, than some other people in the university. My own belief is that um, actually even independent of COVID, the university cannot actually respond or resolve the the mental health needs that people have that, that students have and it's, it's i think it's a mistake for universities to try to become kind of mini communities that do all things for all people um, because frankly we're just not set up for it you know we're, we're not a psychiatric hospital we're not a mental health clinic um, although we've sort of set up a counseling center even then I think a lot of students would say it doesn't function very well or it's too crowded. Um, for me, I don't think the solution is to hire more counselors or to hire more therapists. I, I don't think that there's a number that we could hire that would actually meet the needs. Mm. Instead, um, it's about one, trying to get the, the rest of the community, as you said, the province to, to pick up um, to, to sort of contribute to the costs and and help uh, resolve that burden. But I think even more importantly, we have to reframe the way we think about mental health and illness and, and really the way that we think about distress. So a lot of students, I think right now, the only language they have to express 
their distress is that of mental health and illness. But I'm not sure that that's actually very useful. That's interesting. So do you think that kind of the conventional ways that we go about um, helping people with their mental health would also have to change in that reframing? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, so like an interesting thing for me to think about is the um, the move to destigmatize mental illness or the sort of anti-stigma campaigns that exist. And there are loads of them around campus, loads of them around, around the province. And they come from a really good place. You know, the, the move to destigmatize uh, mental illness really started because people who were diagnosed with conditions like schizophrenia were truly ostracized from society. They may have lived in hospitals on the outskirts of the city. People avoided them on the street because they seemed to be behaving a bit unusually or a bit strangely. Um, they were denied the right to vote if they lived in psychiatric hospitals. So we're talking about quite profound stigmatization. But I think in the effort to address that, what's happened is inadvertently we've also um, kind of promoted a language around mental health and illness that encourages all people to understand themselves as potentially mentally ill at any point and kind of on a precipice of, you know, you're always in, in facing some sort of mental health danger. And, and again, I know that comes from a good place where we want to encourage people to seek help and so on, but I think a byproduct of it is actually we've we've kind of taken something away from people which is their ability to think about things like stress and tension anxiety and sadness to think about them independent of this kind of healthcare system framing hmm. so would you say that's dangerous because it kind of creates more um, I guess as you were saying less of a language of discussing um, your stress and your issues in your life without taking into account kind of the medical aspect of it. Um, like what sort of dangers do you think that poses to us as a society? There are a couple. Uh, so one is, is it creates tremendous burden on the mental health care system. So we see this at McMaster with, with counselors who are overloaded with cases. We see this in the community with psychotherapists or with psychiatrists who are kind of stretched to the limit. I think another part of it um, that's that's kind of concerning is the way that we think about mental health problems, um, we kind of tie them into our identity, right? If you think about the language, a person says, I have an anxiety disorder, I have bipolar disorder, I have ADHD, and that kind of implies a permanence. But actually, it might be more helpful to think about it like this. At this moment in time, in this snapshot of my life, I'm experiencing these things. I'm having these sensations. I'm experiencing these thoughts. I'm participating in these behaviors. And, and I think the, the problem with the kind of medicalized view is that it really encourages us to take it on as part of who we are as a person. Mm. And I think that that can sometimes be beneficial for people, but it can also be quite limiting. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So I guess, are you sort of advocating for separating the symptoms maybe from the, or I mean, symptoms, quote unquote, I realize that in itself is sort of a medicalized term, but kind of um, separating that from the category of a mental illness of some, some sort. 
I mean, I think what I'm in favor of is trying to get all of us to think about mental health and illness in really complicated, nuanced, complex ways. Mm-hmm. To kind of acknowledge that actually it's not quite as simple as saying, you know, ADHD is a disease just like tuberculosis is a disease. Because that's not really fair. Right? With tuberculosis, we can identify particularly bacteria. We know that big bacteria causes this disease. It's quite specific. Whereas when it comes to to mental health problems, they're more like kind of, you know, sometimes helpful, sometimes problematic metaphors that explain part of the human experience. But I think what we need to do is interrogate those metaphors and think a little bit about what the consequences are. So um, there was a book put out a couple years ago by quite a famous psychiatrist, this guy by the name of, of Alan Francis. It was called Saving Normal. And this was a big deal because he was as insider as one could get in the field of psychiatry. He is one of those prominent psychiatrists in the world. And when even he was beginning to say, we're kind of losing something here in this sort of over-medicalizing of suffering, distress, and pain, um, for me, that was that was quite telling. And it sort of reflected what a lot of people have been saying for a long time. That must have been like very brave of him to do that since he's so deeply embedded in that system. Probably, probably quite challenging, yeah. So if you're looking at sort of different stressors in people's lives that some people might categorize as mental illness, but you're essentially saying that it's, you know, just a part of the human experience, do you think that um, consistent stressors should be addressed, but just not from the perspective of mental health? Yeah, so, so one thing I do want to be really clear about is, you know, I absolutely believe that people's suffering is real. Their pain is real, their frustration is real, their sadness is real. The question is not whether those feelings or experiences are, are real or worthy of attention. For me, the question is, what's the best way to respond to them? And I think if we, if we frame them as always being kind of signs of a mental health problem, for most people they assume then that it requires some kind of medical solution. And I'm just, I'm not convinced that constraining ourselves is is the best way to do that. So you talked about these stressors that might be consistent in a person's life. Um, I'm certainly open to the idea that for some people, it is this kind of almost congenital illness or this illness that they're going to, that's going to be with them throughout their whole lives. Um, But I think for a lot of people, actually, if we demedicalize, our understanding of those things, we're, we're open to other ways of addressing those problems, right. you know, way, and, and we're open to things that maybe fall outside the medical system, which then decreases the burden on the medical system, but also gives us a much um, broader toolbox to use. For sure. And so do you think that those other ways of dealing with stressors, um, would those be things that you think universities would provide, or would that also be more of a provincial uh, responsibility? Yeah, I, I think universities could try to provide some of them, but again, I, I think that there's a danger in that universities lose their core mission. Um, you know, as I understand it, at least as someone who who sought, you know, sought out the chance to become a professor, um, I wasn't really ever thinking about the university as this sort of wraparound institution that handled every aspect of a person's life. 
you know, I don't think we, we should be involved in managing lifestyles too much. We, we need to pursue our academic mission. And that doesn't mean, of course, that we do away with, with any and all support services. I think some, some support is absolutely fundamentally necessary and, and appropriate. But, um, like, I'm not sure that bringing ponies on campus to make people happy mm-hmm. once a week um, is the best way to spend our time or money. I think that actually we need to say to people, you know, you're here to study first and foremost, and we want to support you in that. Um, but, you know, some you may need to sometimes search elsewhere for, for responses or solutions. So the university can do some things, but I think everyone is, is lying to themselves. We're lying to students. We're lying to ourselves as faculty and administrators if we kind of pretend that the university could ever respond to all of these problems. Right. Let's shift focus sort of away from um, the university context and talk about mental health more in general. You are known for discussing how definitions of mental health are inherently linked to societal context and social interaction. You've touched on it a bit um, so far in this interview, but do you think you could kind of elaborate more on that idea? Sure. Uh, I mean, at, at its most basic level, when we identify something as mental illness, we are saying that it is an aberration or a deviation from what is normal. Now, that seems straightforward enough, but of course, I think anyone with even um, a, a little bit of thought, you know, put into it would say, well, what is normal is contextual. What is normal is constantly changing and it's constantly evolving. And we can think of lots of different examples of this. You know, the, probably the most famous one would be something like homosexuality was a was a psychiatric diagnosis for a period of time. And eventually that was demedicalized and depathologized. And of course, now we would never think about homosexuality as a, as a mental disorder. And what I would say to, to people is that um, we have to be cautious about thinking that this is a complete process. You know, I think it's easy to give into the temptation that of thinking, you know, in the past we were in darkness, but now we've got it all figured out. And, you know, science has ridden to the rescue and provided us with uh, a perfect account of exactly what a mental illness is and what is not a mental illness. But I would say, you know, we're, we're still always defining things in relation to normality. So a really good example of that would be something like ADHD. So ADHD does not have a long history as a psychiatric diagnosis. Um, really, the, the notion that a child with a lot of energy or a child who you know, didn't focus super well, that that was a kind of a, a medical problem that had to be dealt with, that's something that comes about only when you have people sitting in school for a long period of time, forced to stay at their desk, forced to compete for grades, and so on. In another context, there's no problem with the idea that someone might be really energetic, or they might have trouble focusing. I mean, in some contexts, that might be even adaptive, right? But it, it took that creation of a context of sort of being sat at a desk all day in order for us to identify that as a problem. So if we did away with you know formal schools, for instance, or if we did away with school in the way that we do it now, if we had more outdoor education, if um, schools were more mobile, less desk focused, you wouldn't need something like ADHD. Right, and maybe like uh, qualities that generally lead to academic success, like you know the ability to focus for really long periods of time and 
really still maybe that would end up being pathologized too if, if it was um, you kind of were more likely to lean towards being super focused than super energetic, for example. Absolutely. I mean, I, like I will use myself as an example. Um, I ruminate on things. Ruminating happens to work really well if you're a scholar because it means you can think deeply on something. But, you know, if I had a different kind of job, it wouldn't be very helpful for me to spend so much time ruminating and thinking over things and tossing them around in my head and so on. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, so when you talk about how what's seen as normal uh, ends up defining what's seen as mentally abnormal, um, do you think that discourse on mental health and its social context kind of is changing or will change as a result of the shifting normal caused by this pandemic? That is a really good question. Um, I, I mean, I think the answer is yes, for sure, depending on how long, you know, how long it takes for things to resolve themselves. Um, I, I don't know exactly what direction it's going to go in. I, I wish I, I had that ability to say, well, I think this will end up being pathologized or, or this won't. Um, you know, I, I could imagine if this took, I mean, cause the thing is, things change in the world of mental health, but they, they tend to do so slowly. If this lasted for 10 years, I think we would end up with, you know, I mean, you kind of see already mentions of things like Zoom fatigue, which is not, it's not medicalized, but, you know, if it lasted 10 years, I'm sure it would be, actually. Um, so I do, I think the pandemic has that potential. It depends on how long it lasts. Right. Yeah. Even things like people who still go to parties or still, you know, are socializing and not social distancing. Like, I, I definitely see that becoming pathologized as well. Well, I mean, so for example, there, there, you know, there are several diagnoses that already exist that include things like, you know, um, the inability to empathize with other people or disregard for um, the concerns or care of other people. That's built into things like um, sociopathy. I'm sure people have heard that term before. I mean, you could certainly frame what you're talking about in that context. Now, right now, I think we're thinking about it like these are people who are having a hard time deviating from what used to be normal. But if the new normal is everyone in these bubbles where we don't see each other and you're that person going out to a party, it could be pathologized as a, as a symptom. Um, and again, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that those people are mentally ill, but rather mental illness is always a kind of constant changing dialogue. So it's a matter of how we frame things. Right. That is super, super interesting. Um, I think that that is about all of the time that we have today. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us. This is super interesting, and I loved that you sort of brought a totally different perspective to the concept of mental health. I think one that a lot of people otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to, so that's really exciting. Yeah, cheers, Emily. Thank you very much for, for asking me on. All right. That was Dr. Matt Belly.